Good morning. Well, it's an absolute joy to be back with all of you. Uh, Ann and I are so happy to be back to see familiar faces from two years ago when we were last here, as well as lots of new faces. It's encouraging to see the growth in this church and the continued gospel witness that this church continues to stand here in Hacienda Heights. Uh, we have great memories here during our time here. And I thank you for the privilege of bringing God's word to you this morning. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. I believe if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 457. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and your fathers, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hand and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, 
and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our hearts to see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners. Would this psalm point us ultimately to the cross of Christ and the great salvation that we have in him. And may this lead us to be a people with a great desire to reach the nations for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our psalm this morning is written by the anointed king of Israel. You see that in the very beginning. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. This psalm was written about a thousand years before Jesus Christ. It was written as a song. We also know that because of the introduction. He writes it to the choir master. It's also sung to the tune of the doe of the morning, or the doe of the dawn. And just like all songs, it really does use vivid imagery, doesn't it? He uses vivid imagery to describe his situation and his emotions. We actually don't know what situation David was in in the song. We don't know where these specific events happened. But something we do know is that David was reflecting on real experiences. He was reflecting on his real emotions and feelings. It's really a song of a man pouring out himself to God. A real man, experiencing real suffering. But this psalm is also much more than just about David. God has caused this suffering of David to point us to a greater sufferer. It points us to the true king, to King Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, 44? Please turn with me there quickly. So Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Friends, our psalm this morning ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. The language of Psalm 22 is the language of the cross. The language of Psalm 22 is the language of the cross. So that's where we'll go. To behold the crucified Lamb of God to stare and marvel at the cross of Christ. And I pray as we do this, that you will see that Jesus is the one who brings salvation to the whole world through His great suffering. This morning we'll split our text into two parts. 
First part will be the suffering of a king. Second, the salvation of a king. The suffering of a king and the salvation of a king. So first, the suffering of a king. Verses 1 to 18. Look with me at the first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. So here we learn that David cries out to God day and night, constantly crying out to the God he knows. Yet in the midst of his crying out, God doesn't answer. God is silent. I have to remember, this isn't a cry of anger, but more of a cry of confusion and need. He knows that God is the only one who could save him from his circumstance. But yet, at the same time, God does not answer him. Jesus, too, cried out to God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Son of God prayed to the Father. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, Jesus says this to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus prays this prayer three times, asking the same thing, Father, take this cup away from me. Take away the cup of judgment that I'm about to drink. I don't want it. If there's any other way to save my people, do that. And you know what the Father's answer was in that garden? It too was silence. Verse 3 to 5. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here David remembers his God. That his God is worthy to be praised And that David himself is able to trust him, just like Abraham, Jacob, and Moses trusted him. Well, not once did Jesus ever forget the Father. Not once did Jesus ever mistrust him. Even in the garden that we just read, his final words were, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus fully trusted The Father, he trusted God perfectly. In verses 6 to 8, David is then despised by those around him. People hate him. They're angry at him. People are mocking him. They're hurling insults at him. They even shake their heads and say, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Friends, wasn't Jesus too despised by those around him? People spat in his face, mocked him as king. They gave him a purple robe, a staff, and a crown of thorns. According to Matthew, the people wagged their heads at Jesus as well. And they said, according to verse 40, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And what's interesting is the Pharisees even quote this psalm. 
They say to Jesus on the cross, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Well, the huge irony about that is that the Pharisees placed themselves in our psalm today, this morning, with the enemies of the king. They failed to realize that the true suffering king was right in front of them. See, Jesus was the king that nobody wanted. But he's the king that everybody needs. He's the king that nobody wanted, but is the king that everybody needs. Look at verse 9 and 10. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Here David reflects on what God has done for him in the past. Everything David has, even his very life, has been given by a loving Heavenly Father, a Father who knows him and inclines his heart to trust him. And above all, David realizes he has God himself, that from the womb, the Lord has been David's God. What glorious reminders of the sovereign power of God. That He's sustaining, knowing, working all things according to His wisdom and His goodness. This was certainly true of David's suffering, and it was true of Christ's suffering on the cross. And it's even true now in your lives. So as you yourself experience suffering and you're wondering, why? Why is this happening? Remember that God is to be trusted <clears throat> And he has a purpose and plan for every little thing that in the midst of suffering, there's also a reflection of the suffering of the greater king, King Jesus. Well, in verse 11 to 18, David continues to describe his situation. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David clearly is in trouble. And there's no one to help. His enemies have surrounded him. They're described like bulls of Bashan. Now these are bulls of incredible size. And they're described as circling. Circling around David just like moments before the attack. They're also described as lions ready to tear open their prey. It's like the final moments of death, if you can imagine being in a cage with a lion. As you sit there, the lion's staring at you. You begin to see the lion's mouth open up before it grips you and tears you to shreds. That's the experience of David at this point. That's what he feels like. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd that is broken pieces of pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David is hopeless. He's hopeless at this point. His strength is gone like pieces of broken pottery. He's broken into pieces without hope. And so he prepares himself for death. 
16 to 18, describes it even more. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I wonder, do, do you see? Do you see the suffering of King David? Do you see at this point, David is forsaken by God and rejected by men. I wonder if you notice that God is the one that did all of this for David. God is the one who's done all of this. Verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. You lay me in the dust of death. He's praying to God. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's the one who's forsaken David. The question we have to ask is why? Why? Why would God do such a thing? Why has he done this to the anointed king of Israel? Well, like I said in the beginning, the language of Psalm 22 is the language of the cross. It's in these verses, things become very clear for us after the death of Christ. David's suffering points us to the greater sufferer, the greater king. These verses depict for us the very sufferings of Christ 1,000 years before it ever happens. Jesus, too, was encircled by his enemies as he was brought out by Pilate. Everyone of the crowds were like lions ready for the kill. Remember what they yelled as Pilate asked what was, they, what was he to do with Jesus? Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! They yelled over and over again. And so Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect man, God himself in the flesh, was pierced with nails through his hands and his feet. He was hung on a cross publicly for all to see. His killers would indeed divide his garments and he would thirst and his strength would fail. Friends, don't you see? The language of Psalm 22 is the language of the cross. And after three hours of darkness, a three-hour solar eclipse, which represented the judgment of God being poured out on Jesus, Jesus cries out our very first verse. Eli, Eli, laba sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus dies. Jesus on that cross is forsaken by the Father. See, it's on that cross, Jesus would take all the sins on himself of all those who would believe in him. And he would suffer in their place. The second person of the Trinity who only knew the Father's good pleasure was now faced for the first time with the Father's wrath. And God poured out the judgment we deserved on the Son. And the perfect fellowship of the Father and the Son was broken. Why? Why? Why would God do such a thing to the Son? Why would he forsake Jesus on that cross? 
The answer is so he could save sinners like you and me. To display his justice and his love for all to see. See, if Jesus had gotten off that cross, if he had decided, okay, I'm going to get off this cross, because he could have. He had the power to do so. But if he did, there would be no salvation for anyone. We would all get what we deserve. Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us understand this so well. Listen to what he says. If God could have forgiven sin by just saying, I forgive, he would have done so. And Christ would have never been sent into this world. The work that was given to him to do, his work, this work, this assignment, this task, was given to the Lord Jesus Christ because I say again, without it, God cannot forgive sin. Friends, the Bible is so clear. Without the cross of Christ, all of us, all of us in this room would get exactly what we deserve an eternity in hell, forsaken by the God of the universe. That's what we deserve. Listen to Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. See, in our text this morning, we're the enemies of God scoffing at Jesus yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, over and over and over again. Friends, do you see that we're all guilty this morning? We are guilty. We have the blood of the Savior on our hands, and there is nothing that we can do to wash it all away. See, the cross is not only the display of God's justice and love, It's the greatest display of our guilt and our shame. The cross is not only a display of God's justice and love, it's the greatest display of our guilt and our shame. Oh, my dear friends, non-Christian and Christian, do you see your guilt this morning? Do you see what your sins deserve? Peter Green wrote, Only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Oh, if you see your guilt, if you see your shame, perhaps for the first time this ever, run to Christ. As we sung earlier, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Run to the one who could wash all your guilty hands. Run to the one who takes all your sins on himself and was forsaken by God so that you would not be. Run to the one who did not save himself so that he could save you. Turn away from your sins and trust in the forsaken one of God. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the suffering king that none of us ever wanted. But he's the king that all of us need. So first we saw the suffering of a king. Next we'll see the salvation of a king. In verses 19 to 21, David prays one final time for deliverance. And in verse 24, 
It reveals that the Lord answers his prayer. Look at verse 24 with me. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Friends, God answered David's prayer. He rescued and saved his anointed king. This is even true of Jesus himself. Though Jesus was really forsaken by God, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. On the third day, Jesus rose gloriously from the dead, showing that He, in fact, conquers our sin, our guilt, and conquers the very judgment of God that we all deserve. Leon Morris says it, Well, the cross is the victory, the resurrection, the triumph. The resurrection is the public display of the victory, the triumph of the crucified one. So anytime we begin to doubt God's ability to forgive or save, anytime you personally begin to doubt God's ability to forgive you, remember that Christ has been raised. The grave is empty. He has triumphed over our sin for all to see. And that's good news for us all in this room. And look at the way that this news spreads. It first begins with David, his own salvation, celebrating it. And then he begins to speak it to his brothers, his fellow Israelites. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. David here proclaims what the Lord has done for him to all of God's people. Beloved, here is such an important lesson for us all. And it's this. Let us not forsake God's church. Let us not forsake God's church. Brothers and sisters, God has not called you to live your Christian life by yourself. He has called all of us together, in unity, in one local body of believers. This is exactly what this church seeks to do every Sunday morning. They gather and celebrate the salvation of the King. Here at Hacienda, we celebrate that every week, that He has died and that He has risen and that He has saved us with His blood. We celebrate this as we sing we celebrate this as we pray, and we celebrate this as we hear God's word together. So if you're here and you're not a regular attender, but you say that you're a Christian, I hope that you see that that's nowhere in the Bible. That the Bible calls you to be part of a local body. So make it a priority in your life to meet regularly with God's people every Sunday. It's also another reason why you should be a member of a local church. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you should be a member of a local church. If you attend regular here, you should be a member here if you say you're a Christian. We are commanded to live out the Christian life in unity and in fellowship with one another. This means committing to love one another, committing to serve one another in Christ, not just on Sunday mornings, 
But throughout the week, as we pray, as you meet with one another and encourage one another. Well, in verses 25 and 26, David continues to celebrate with God's people as he brings a thanksgiving offering to the Lord, a meal for all to enjoy in response to what God has done for the king. I wonder if you notice that something happens to this praise. It doesn't just stop within Israel. It begins to move further out, beyond the people of Israel. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity, that is generation after generation, shall serve him. And it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. The praise of the Lord will go to the nations. Not only will Israel praise the Lord, but all the nations in the world will bow down to the Lord. All will hear the good news of the Lord. And what is this good news? Verse 31. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. That He has done it. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound so familiar of the last cry of Christ Himself? It is finished. The cry of Jesus on the cross. Salvation accomplished. It's done. While the whole world tries to earn salvation by their works, they proclaim, do. Jesus comes and proclaims to us, done. Salvation accomplished. This is good news for the whole world. The rich, the poor, the dying, the weak, the strong, the powerful. It's good news for every race, every tribe, every religious background, every generation. And it's the news that will resound to the nations. And we know that this is true. In Revelation 7, we we read of what is in store for the people of God. Revelation 7, 9, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our God is much bigger than just you and me. Our God is much bigger than just you and me. His vision is much bigger than just simply this church, this city, this area. This country, he wants the whole world. He wants the nations. And the nations he will get because he has done it. And his means for reaching the nations is simply his church. Churches like this, his people. So let us go. Let us go and proclaim the gospel to a needy and dying world in a world where everything around decays 
let us bring them a hope that endures. In a world full of empty promises and failures, let us bring them a hope that is sure. A salvation that is secured by the very blood of the Son of God. Well, how do we do this? How do we as Christians bring this hope to a dying world? Orlando Sayer, in his excellent book, Big God, summarizes God's plan to reach the nations in three simple words. We love, live, speak. We love, live, and speak. So first, we love. Jesus himself said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus himself said the world would know his people by their love for each other. So brothers and sisters, love each other well. If you struggle with a commitment to evangelism and loving your church, that doesn't have to be so. Your commitment to your local church, your love for one another, is a witness to the neighborhood, to all those around you as you suffer with each other, as you weep with each other, as you rejoice with each other. So lovingly lay down your lives for each other, so for everyone to see. I know for both my wife and I, when we weren't Christians, as we first attended a church, the love of that church stood as a bold witness that something radical was different here. Seeing their love, the way that they sacrificed time, the way they sacrificed resources for each other, was a witness for us. So love each other well. Second, we live. First, Peter calls us to this. Peter himself, he says, You are called, uh, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As believers, we are called to live godly and attractive lives that display the God of our salvation. Even if that means going against the cultural trend. Even if that means going against some of the cultural trends and uh, we get labeled as a church as judgmental, mainly because we've decided to be faithful to God's Word. We must stand with who God is. We have to remember that our lifestyle displays and reflects God in every way. So, in the way that you get angry, you're displaying to everyone around you that God is an angry God. As you're uncaring, you display to everyone that God doesn't care about people. He's uncaring. Or do you display Him as the kind and compassionate God that He is? See, we'll either display Him as the holy God that He is, or an an unrighteous, unworthy God who doesn't care about sin and the destruction it brings. We must display Him as the good God of all all creation and salvation, who gives us His good commands for our good. Brothers and sisters, your Christian lives will either destroy your witness to the gospel or it will help build it up. Thirdly, finally, we speak. No one is ever going to look at your life so you might be living a holy and righteous life as radically distinct, but no one's ever going to look at your life and say, oh, I think I'm going to be a Christian now. 
I think I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to believe in Jesus and the Savior that I need. I think I'm going to do that. No one's ever going to do that without you actually speaking. It requires words. They actually first need to know that you're a Christian. You need to speak to them about their sin, about the holy God who created them, and the judgment that they deserve. And you need to speak to them about Christ, the very Christ that we've beheld in our text this morning, the Christ who saves sinners if they repent and believe. So let us speak. Let us speak. Christ himself has given his church the right to be the witness with words to proclaim this gospel to the nations. So let us speak this gospel without fear, with great love for those around us. So we love, we live, and we speak. You have been placed in this city for the glory of God. God doesn't just use pastors, elders at this church to, to spread the gospel. He uses ordinary Christians living ordinary Christian lives who are living faithfully for His glory. I wonder if you've ever thought about everything in your life. Nothing is an accident. The area you live is a place to share the gospel. The school that you go to, I know there are a lot of Biola students here, even Biola is a place to share the gospel. The job you have, the, the gym you work out at, the neighbors you have, all, every aspect of your life is an avenue given to you by God that you might live boldly for Christ and also speak boldly for Him. And by God's grace, we'll see many of those saved, trusting in our glorious Savior. And yes, following this king will lead to suffering, just as Jesus suffered. Jesus was clear about it, and so was his disciples. As we read this morning, Jesus was rejected. You too, in the midst of this, will be rejected. You could be fired from a job for sharing the gospel. You could be mocked. Friendships will indeed be destroyed. You'll be ridiculed for your faith. You'll be ridiculed for the way that you live. You'll be called intolerant at times. Maybe not here in Hacienda Heights, but all over the world, there are those who are willing to die and are dying for the King. We're not saved for our own comfort. We're saved to live for our King who died for the nations. So let's go outside the camp and suffer with our suffering King for His sake and the glory of His name. And in the midst of suffering for this king, as you sit in persecution, or just suffering, living in a broken world, we can know that God says this to us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Why? How can we know this? Well, because God has forsaken His Son, Jesus, in our place. And we can say with the writer of Hebrews, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Beloved, our hope as we live out the Christian life and bring the gospel to a world that needs it is this. He has done it. Let's pray together.
Father, may we never move away from the old, old story of the cross. May we never think that we are beyond the the reminder of our guilt and our shame and the death of the Son in place of sinners. Father, may we marvel at this daily as we meet with one another, as we hear your word, as we spend time in it. And may we rejoice. May this news cause us to rejoice greatly that we want to tell the whole world and that we want to obey you, the God who has willingly laid down his life for us. So Father, teach us. Continue to convict us of our sin, but also continue to grow us to understand the depth of the love of Christ. Help us rejoice there and help us call others to rejoice with us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.